And that was the Smiths with The Queen Is Dead. This is David Eastall. This is the C86. 
Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. As always, playing and bringing you the finest in indie pop. This week's special guest is going to be Amanda Brown from The Go-Betweens. Yes, the very famous Go-Betweens. So I've got that interview that I'm going to break up into about three or four little easy-to-digest little sections throughout the show, alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. Yes, I am. But to... um, kick off the party and to sort of get, let you settle into the general vibe of the next 55 minutes I'm going to play your favourite and mine this is Streets of Your Town Perfection that was the go betweens and the track titled Streets of Your Town that came from their album 16 Lovers Lane. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show, bringing the finest in indie pop. A few weeks ago, possibly months, I don't know, I'm not keeping count. Um, I caught up with Amanda Brown, who was part of the go betweens. She was in Australia. We just blew the budget. We just flew out there, did the interview, came home. No, I didn't. But um, yes, there was a 12-hour difference, so it was quite tricky to uh, coordinate that. But we did it. Um, So we had a very long chat. A very long chat, in fact, um, which I'm going to bring to you in the rest of the show. Not quite, actually, because as we're we're getting into the general vibe. I think we should play one more track by the go-betweens and then the first part of that interview. This is taken from the album Tallulah. And yes, you've guessed it. This is the house that Jack Kerouac built. (laughs) 
go-betweens with a track titled The House That Jack Kerouac Built, and that came from their 1987 album Tallulah. This is David Eastall, this is the C86 show, and this week's special guest is going to be Amanda Brown from the go-betweens, um, who we, well, I caught up with quite recently, and this is going to be the first part of the interview, where um, we had a very long chat, and then got on to the bit about um, the beginnings of her sort of musical life because we worked out that we're roughly the same age anyway amanda okay well as you say we are roughly the same age um being born in the mid 60s and um 
I did not come from a musical family. There's nobody, as far as I know, in my family that is has ever been a composer or professional musician or even performer. Um, <clears throat> my dad's side of the family are English. They came out here, um, I think, around the 1940s or 50s to Australia, um, and they were what was known colloquially as the 10-pound poms. Oh, this, yes, this I've come across this. Yeah, there was like quite a massive wave of British immigration to Australia during that time. Yes. Um, so that's my dad's side, and they were all um, kind of really working class truck drivers and coal miners and um, really from the, the south of London. So they ended up living in a rural New South Wales and attempting to be farmers really unsuccessfully. <laughs> and um, my mum's side is sort of Scottish immigrants from a few generations back and for, um, were dairy farmers. So, yes, there's nobody musical. Um, however, my dad, I guess, was my sort of earliest musical influence. He was a Beatles fan and the first album on vinyl that I remember really loving was Sgt Pepper's. Right. And with, with its seminal and iconic gatefold sleeve and the Beatles in their military, colourful military costumes. Um, and I, and from there, my own musical taste sort of, you know, I, it's probably very similar to lots of people my age. I really liked ABBA when I was at primary school. And um, then in high school, I picked up the violin because we all had the opportunity to learn an instrument and violin actually was the only thing left by the time I was organised enough to pay my higher deposit. <laughs> and, uh, 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 and fortuitously the violin turned out to be a very useful instrument because it's obviously used in the classical realm but it crosses over into so many different musical genres which was to serve me well later although I didn't know it at the time. No. And um, <clears throat> in high school I was not, I was definitely not one of the in crowd and I, I really was a classical music absolute and utter nerd and I, I genuinely really got excited about exploring classical music so Yes. Um, it started out with sort of the more accessible composers like Tchaikovsky and Beethoven, but then um, as as I've got older, I've I really like the Baroque period of classical music. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's interesting because we when I was growing up in the mid to late sixties, I suppose we didn't really have a record player. I think when my my dad got married. I think they had to sell everything, you know, so literally everything, and just to get a bit of a deposit, even though, you know, you know, buying a house was still very cheap. It was still more than, you know, you weren't so little in those days that, you know, I think most people, it was just kind of a common story. And eventually we got a record player in the 70s, and my brother bought a few records, and, and one of them was Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, and the other one was Sergeant Pepper you know, by the Beatles. And this was kind of the early 70s. And I played them continuously because at the time it was like there wasn't many records we had in the house, actually. I think it was a couple of country and western ones my dad went and bought to replace a few that he'd sold. And then, um, and I hadn't sort of put any value on them apart from the fact that I quite liked them. And, and that was all we had. So I played those, those kind of two albums. They were, you know, just constantly and thinking, God, you know, music's really interesting. So, I, that, yes, it's interesting you mentioned Sgt Pepper because... Because at the time in the early 70s, it probably wasn't culturally held as much, you know, it wasn't that interesting probably because it was only probably about five or six years old, wasn't it, at the time? Yeah, but also I think that album, it has a huge appeal to kids, um, not only visually because of the artwork, but uh, I mean also some of the songs, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and... Um, oh, um, what's yeah, the name so of the song for the benefit of Mr Kite? Yes, Mr. Um, Kai. And, I, and my favourite one was Good Morning, which was on side two. And I used to play that all the time and was quite excited about the whole, the way it was kind of done and the drum and this kind of 
and all the sort of dogs barking at the end of it. But you know, as yeah, a, exactly. As a, I, as a ten, I think all those things, yeah, they really appealed to kids. Yeah, it did feel like it was also I hadn't appreciated as a ten-year-old. There was that sort of whole nod to the musical, music hall kind of um, era of sort of entertainment, I suppose. So. That was kind of fascinating. So then, obviously, you'd gone off into classical, which was something that, um, yes, quite unusual, really, for somebody who was from that kind of social background, I would have thought. Yep, yep, that's true. Although, um, actually, my mum was always um, a big fan of ballet. And so I, I did grow up listening to things like Swan Lake a bit, too. So that was there, but, um, yeah, until I sort of had the opportunity to actually learn an instrument and then play in an orchestra, a whole other world of music was opened up to me. And being a quite a, a bookish, um, isolated, <laughs> nerdy, depressed teenager, the world of classical music was quite a nice world to retreat into. Yes, because um, most people I spoke to... You know, and of, of this kind of, you know, basically your age without giving it away too much. But but you normally, you know, kind of slightly missed punk because you had been quite young for punk. But it was kind of caught up with it in the late sort of 70s, early 80s. And then sort of thought, oh, yes, punk was good. And then sort of started getting into indie pop, as we called it back, you know, in England. Um, and then started getting into those post-punk bands and you know, people like Orange Juice and people on postcard records. And then obviously the Smiths came around in 83. So were you aware of the kind of mu that kind of musical kind of fashion and trend that was kind of happening? Um, yes, I was aware of it. And as you say, we were exactly in that time frame where we were, we missed the first wave of punk. But, but Punk really influenced everything that we did musically, although we didn't probably realise it at the time, but the whole DIY aesthetic, which meant that by the time I was 17 and playing in my first band, um, the fact that everybody else in the band were artists primarily and not musicians meant that everybody had this very gung-ho attitude as, uh, of, well, it doesn't really matter if we can't play our instruments very well. What's important is the concept and what we're trying to do and just the whole idea of music as almost performance art and that you can literally do anything. Yes. So that, that is very much um, a, a punk philosophy so that certainly influenced my subculture and it's absolutely where the go-betweens, who the rest of the the members of the go-betweens are sort of 8 to 14 years older than me. Right. And, um, and they very much did come out of that first wave of punk. So they were listening to probably more the American New York wave of punk people like um, television and Iggy Pop um, and Talking Heads were hugely influential for them. Yes. Um, and for me, the, sort of growing up in Sydney a few years later, I was more, um, I did love Talking Heads, but I, I also really loved people like Brian Eno and the more electronic side of things, Kraftwerk and Krautrock. Right. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, and also I have to confess I did quite like some of the um, the early new romantic synth pop bands as well. And that's the first part of my interview with Amanda Brown from The Go-Betweens. I've still got quite a bit more of that to go, but just to keep the party rolling, I think we should play another track just so that we can sort of get up and boogie. This is, um, I never say that normally, um, was there anything I could do? Listen, baby, we're through. 
Here's the go-betweens with a track titled Was There Anything I Could Do? This is David Eastall, The C86 Show. Um, if you ever want to uh, contact me for some good and nice positive reason, you can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86 Show. I will be there. And also, um, if you want to hear any of these shows that I've already done, I have put them on Mixcloud and also Spotify and iTunes. Just uh, Google or search C86 Show and you'll see lots of... Uh, Bands, interviews with different people, etc., etc. Anyway, this is going to be the second part of my interview with Amanda Brown, where I asked her how she managed to find herself being part of the Go Betweens, who, let's face it, were one of the most important and influential bands of the 80s, alongside the June Bright and the Smiths, obviously. At the time, I was dating a, a man called Michael O'Connell, who came from the same Brisbane subculture as the go-betweens in heat. So he had known them in Brisbane. Um, and we played together in a duet and we were playing in a cafe in King's Cross one night in Sydney. And the go-betweens were on tour at the time and came along to see us play. And we happened to be playing a go-betweens song called Draining the Pool which is from the Spring Hill Fair album, and they really were, well, I think Lindy in particular was very struck by my violin playing and immediately invited me to come along and play a show with them, which I don't, I'm, she didn't really consult with the rest of the band. <laughs> she just <laughs> insisted that it happen. Um so I did that. I learned a few more songs and came along and played in Sydney with them. And that was, I'd, I'd never played to such a big audience before. It was a grand old venue called the Tivoli that is no longer there, but was, yes. I guess, roughly the size of somewhere like the town and country in London. And um, it just sort of went from there. Then Then I got invited to play in Melbourne. Then I got invited to join the band and move to London. Wow, that's which was all. Yeah, it was all very exciting for uh, roughly. I think I was about nineteen and had just was just in my first year of university. Yeah, and I'd never really been outside of Australia unless you count New Zealand. 
Yes. So, <laughs> that was quite a so it was a really exciting opportunity. Well, yes, because actually there was a track from that album, Spring Hill Fair, which was the first song I'd ever heard from the Go-Betweens that I loved, which was Park Company, and I just always thought that was a, I don't know why. It was, be- well, obviously I just said, you know, how much I enjoyed being sort of melancholic and slightly awkward and depressed. So um, obviously that song <laughs> sort of appealed to me straight away. Because having, I spoke to members of the um, Even As We Speak. I mean, they got together and they, as a band, sort of thought, right, from Australia, we'll just go to London because we need to be in London, which I thought was an incredibly brave and amazing thing. I couldn't imagine many bands from London going, you know what we need to do, we need to go to Sydney. So, so that kind of jump. But obviously... With with the go-betweens, they were a bit more established. So did that feel, yeah, both kind of exciting, but also like, God, this is one hell of an adventure? Yes, it did. But there there was a whole wave of Australian bands that went to London during that time. It was not only the go-betweens, but it was people like Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, the Triffids, the Moodists. Um, there were quite a few because... Australia at that time, even though there was quite a healthy live music scene, the possibilities were really limited for that kind of independent, quite idiosyncratic music. Yeah. And and you had to basically leave the country to have a sustainable career. It's it, And it's still like that to some extent because the population of Australia is still it's I think about 25 million now so it's not as small as some European or Scandinavian countries but because we're so far away we don't have Europe as our backyard to tour we have to we really have to leave and um, and people choose to either go to the the United States or the UK because they're English speaking, I guess, and it's sort of a, a relatively easier entree than going somewhere like France or Germany. But yes, this is true. Um, yeah. So 80, that was yeah. So this was kind of the uh, mid eighties, wasn't it? Um, I joined the Go Betweens in nineteen eighty six. So yeah, the mid eighties. A good one, really. And because cause the year that I sort of have put down for various reasons is probably the best year in music was 1987. And this is where you you were sort of featured on the album Tallulah. And this is the, um, yes, this is the album that they did, which also featured the fantastic song, which is The House That Jack Kerouac Built. So did that process, because obviously you were saying you were, saying you were 19 and this was quite an established band with kind of quite older people. How did the sort of creative process continue during that period? Well, to, I was really excited about making Tallulah because up until that point I was the new person in the band and... I was really just playing some of the string arrangements and parts from Liberty Bell that, and, and replicating those parts, which were beautiful. But on Tallulah, I had finally got the opportunity to write my own parts. So um, I took that and ran with it and also incorporated some other things because it just wasn't appropriate or the best course of action to play violin on every song. It didn't suit every song. So I also picked up oboe just simply because somebody had lent me one <laughs> and, <laughs> and started playing a little bit of guitar and singing a bit as well. Yes. So, yeah, Tallulah was a great opportunity to um, flex a bit more creative muscle, so to speak. Yes. And we worked with a really um, a lovely English producer called Richard Preston, who was very much open to giving us free reign. So we were, we really, it was a great way to sort of ease into the band. And um, Lindy and I in particular really were enjoying working together and we worked out a lot of those um, very rhythmic parts, particularly on Jack Kerouac where the violin and the drums are rhythmically very in sync. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was, Tallulah was, it was a really great experience, although it was subsequently remixed by um, 
Mark Wallace because I mean it's so long ago it's hard to remember the details but either the manage, uh, management or the record company who was Beggar's Banquet deemed that it it wasn't quite commercial enough and indeed they they got um, Craig Leon who had worked with Bowie I think um, to mix the, the first single which was right here right so that has a very it's got quite a a distinctly different production aesthetic. It, it's it is a bit more in that eighties sort of glossy, <laughs> mechanized style. <laughs> yes, but it's, it was interesting because there's a lot of um, albums are getting remixed from that period, and I know David Bowie's um, two of his albums tonight and Never Let Me Down has been sort of. T- giving the sort of, um, I suppose, a bit of a sort of sandblast to take that 80s sound and the drums off and to re-record bits to make it sound a bit like, yes, that's more of a David Bowie album um, and a bit better than what came out during that period. And I think he even realised it it just didn't work and that... And he was almost like chasing what the trend was, which was quite unusual for someone like Bowie to do that rather than sort of do what he wanted to do and... um, yeah, it's let inter- others follow him. Yeah. yeah, so he rather sort of yeah, sort of. Um, it's been kind of interesting hearing that that those two albums again recently and thinking yeah, it does sound a lot better and it does sound a bit more like yeah, it doesn't have that horrible eighties sound which feels a bit kind of grating really because because having done this this show for a long time, I, I realised that most bands interestingly have this five year narrative of you know spending a couple of years getting together. And then in, in this country, you know, it would be someone like John Peel picks up the single and gives it a play, and that gives the band a bit more of a push. And then a John Peel session, and then that first album, things are going pretty well. Then the second album, things are a bit tricky, you know, and all the touring that goes on. And if anybody ever tours America, it often seems to finish them off. So, but, but by yeah. then, but by <laughs> then, you were sort of well in the fifth and sixth album, but. I suppose you wouldn't have known that at the time. You know, the band was slowly coming to an end. So when you did 16 Lovers Lane, which obviously had even more hits, but this was the band's sixth album, which was quite extraordinary then, and and, and in a very short, compressed period of time. Did you did you sort of feel that things were sort of, the, the, sort of, the wheels were sort of falling off, so to speak? Um, by the time we did 16 Lovers Lane? Yes. Is that what you're asking me? No, not really. I didn't get that sense. I I got the sense that um, the band's career was just slowly building because, as you say, it was already the sixth album by that stage, but with the go-betweens you're talking about quite an extraordinarily obstinate group of people with um, – and I don't really put myself in this category, but incredible self-belief. And they always were of this opinion, which really surprised me when I met them, that they were, uh, it wasn't so much particularly success that they were obsessed with, but just this idea of building a legacy of incredible songs that would stand alongside other Bands that that they loved, like the Velvet Underground, for example. Yeah. So, I mean, to and, and I guess that comes out of that punk aesthetic that I was talking about earlier, because, and it's very much an arts for arts sake perspective as well. It, it's it, it's can I swear it's like fuck it, we don't care about success. All we care about is making art, and um, and that was a really big um, philosophy of the band in a way. I mean, it was, don't get me wrong, success would have been nice. And, and when you <laughs> when you said, you know, there were there were hits on 16 Lovers Lane, well, there weren't actually any hits. The, the band never had a hit or anything resembling a hit ever. I think Streets of Your Town, the first single from 16 Lovers Lane, was the closest thing, but it, it really, I think, got no further than the nether regions of the top 100. <laughs> and that's the second part of my interview with Amanda Brown from The Go-Betweens. But as we digest that exciting information, I think we should break it up with a bit more music. This is also taken from a classic album, the classic album, 
one of many classic <laughs> albums. This is from 16 Lovers Lane. This is the opening track, Love Goes On. There's a cat in my alleyway Dreaming of birds that are blue Sometimes, girl, when I'm lonely This is how I think about you There are times that I want you I want you so much I could bust I know a thing about lovers Lovers lie down in trust Love goes on anyway Dog got their problems They got things they can't name And I know a thing about lovers Lovers don't feel any shame Late at night when the light's down low The candle burns to the end I know a thing about darkness Darkness ain't my friend Love goes on anyway you happy I'm gonna spin you around I'm gonna cut your string There you go. A bit more musical perfection from the go-betweens and that was the opening track from the album 16 Lovers Lane titled Love Goes On. The 80s, it starts to look really good as you get further away from it celebrating its some of those 30th anniversaries but um, at the time it was a little bit grim, don't forget. We were sort of obsessed with the SWP, eating TVP, I don't know, drinking barley cup, pretending it was nice as coffee but it wasn't, it was horrible. Anyway... Um, This is going to be the third part of my interview with Amanda Bryan from the band. Um, When we were talking about the lack of commercial success, especially with albums and singles like Love Goes On and also The Streets of Your Town and whether that created frustration with the band. Amanda, tell us, did it create frustration? Well, it, it wasn't though it wasn't going anywhere because, as I said, I think it was slowly build building Every well, I I was only on the last two albums, but there was definitely an incremental sort of improvement in terms of reaching more people and playing bigger venues and becoming a bit more widely known, I guess. Mm. Um, but yes, I think that sort of constant financial struggle takes its toll after a while, which is partially why we we as a band we moved back to. Australia in 1988 because it was so hard living in London with very little money even though it was it had the the upside of 
all that proximity to Europe and being in the midst of a really fantastic and vibrant music scene. But being Australians, I think we also, we just, we missed nature, we missed the ocean, we missed our families and the constant grind and struggle of just trying to to remain in, in England got too much and I think we decided by that point, well, we've built enough of an audience to relocate but still come back to Europe every year to play. Yes. And then, yeah, so and, and, and was there a definite sort of moment, you know, to quote Jim Morrison, that the end, the end was happening? Um, look, uh, well, I don't know if you know much about this, but there's been a documentary made about the go-betweens called Right Here. No, actually. And it's, it's a feature-length documentary, and it's just been, it's just had a, a, a cinema run in the UK, and I think it's now been released on DVD. Oh, my God. And um, and there's quite a bit of discussion about the end of the band in that film. But um, what what happened was that Robert and Grant, who were the original songwriters and band members, decided basically to sack the, ba- the rest of the band and to go it alone for the next album, um, which as I say, in the face of this sort of ostensibly building success was quite a dramatic decision to make. Um, And because I and indeed we, the rest of the band, weren't privy to that decision-making, I can't really definitively say what the motivation was, but I I can certainly make very educated guesses (laughs) and... (laughs) And um, I, I do know that from management there was this sort of crazy offer to um, go and tour America with Dylan's Bob Dylan's band backing them. Right. Which, as as um, Dil, Dylan devotees, I could see would have been a very appealing proposition to both uh, Grant and Robert. But. Um, for anybody who, who's seen that documentary I was talking about, it's there was a growing um, feeling from Robert Forster, I think, that he was being inadvertently pushed out of the band that he'd started because he um, his songs weren't chosen as any of the singles for the 16 Lovers Lane album, and there was always a fairly healthy competition between the two songwriters as to who who would have the singles that year for, for that album. And, and until that point, it had been fortuitously a fairly even distribution. Yes. But then Grant really started writing, as you said, those incredibly um, quite poppy, very accessible songs. And so they were chosen... Um, and not only that, there was an increased, when you look at the videos, focus on me, which I in no way <laughs> encouraged or desired to be a focus of the band, but it just it just worked out like that. And Grant and I were also a couple at that, by that stage. And <clears throat> so there was just this shift in focus from Robert and Grant to Grant and I. And um, Robert just, I think, he, he, he's never admitted it, but he, I just don't think it, it was not what he wanted and um, he would have rather have um, ended the band and destroyed everything that we'd built up than continue in the direction that it was going. Yes, and God, and does and does this kind of um, <laughs> and does this all? It, is that all? It kind of also explained in the film. Is that the thing that everyone says? Well, actually, that is right. Or do people have different kind of narratives to the to that kind of story? I just wondered if everyone is kind of in agreement with it. Oh, look, I think everybody is pretty much in agreement with it. Um, I mean, Robert has never admitted that. 
in fact, he's just incredibly evasive when, whenever people ask about the dissolution of the band. Um, I think he, I, I think he sort of says general things like it was just too hard. But um, I mean, it, it, and it's difficult for me to say because at that point when the band broke up, Grant and I. Our relationship also broke up, so it was a hugely dramatic time and we re we all just didn't see each other and talk to each other literally for years, so it was very acrimonious. Yes. And um, so, and for years and years, I don't think any of us really had a perspective on it, but in gradually sort of, pieces of the puzzle fell into place and the story really is is in the videos you can see, you can see it when you look at them it's just Robert being relegated to a more secondary role which and we 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 actually fought that in the band Lindy and I argued quite stridently that um, for clouds to be the second single after streets of your town Yes. Because we, we all loved that song and thought it would be great. But um, the record company decided otherwise. And, yeah, so, I mean, it, it wasn't it, – it's that strange paradox of sort of the commercial pressures on the band were coming from the industry. Um, and as you said – I mean, when when bands go to America, a lot of that's that's often the kiss of death, and it, it wasn't for us, but it was. It's certainly, you know, touring thirty four states in six weeks, and it definitely takes its toll. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. And the other thing that happened around that time was we did two big tours with REM, supporting them. And um, and Lindy and I really got on famously with REM and absolutely loved that tour and 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 getting to know them and listening to their music. But um, I think Robert in particular did not like playing second fiddle to another band as well. So <laughs> that was that was another contributing issue. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, <laughs> and that is the last part of my interview with Amanda Baran from The Go-Betweens. I still have quite a bit more of that interview, so when I put it on podcast, I'll probably give it the extended remix version, so you'll have probably another 20 minutes of interest and chat, if you so wish, or not, who knows. Anyway, that, dear listener, is the end of the show. Thank you ever so much for listening, and a big thank you to Amanda Bryan, all the way from Australia there. This has been David Eastall, the C86 show, as I said, um, and I'll just say it again. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86 show. I will be there. It's always good to hear from you. And, um, yes, all the shows are on Mixcloud, Spotify and iTunes. Just go to C86 show. Anyway, I'll leave you with one more or two more tra tracks from the go-betweens. This is Clouds. Yeah.